Hi, everybody. A quick note before today's program. If you're a listener of this podcast, even if it's your first time listening, maybe after today's program or pause it during, you can go over to whatever podcast directory you use. Uh, simple example, the iTunes Music Store. Maybe not your favorite place, but it is one place where podcasts are found and where reviews can make a huge impact. So if you can, go over there, write something about the show, what it means to you, what you get out of it, leave a few stars or numbers or whatever they use. It would be a great help to make this program be seen and be found because reviews matter. All right, that's it. On with the show. Every time a new use, a new technological development comes about, you actually have to go and change the law if you want to allow this uh, type of use without uh, a copyright infringement. For one very basic structural change that the internet has brought about is the fact that users and authors can now directly communicate with each other. I would argue that this goes against... Uh freedom of speech and freedom of expression and our, our right to receive information. Close your eyes and consider the following everyday situation, right? You're on YouTube because you're about to watch a clip that some friend posted on Facebook or wherever, and it's, it's something funny, or it's something inspiring, or it's something interesting, and you load the URL or you press play, and then that black screen comes up with the white letters, they appear, and they say something like, uh, video not available in your region, or some variation on that. This is just one of those many scenarios, right? You know what I'm talking about. It plays out every day due to, well, copyright laws, or conflicting policies between countries or regions. Many of the rules that make this possible were actually created more than 15 years ago, and some of them go back even further than that, from a time where, well, there was no YouTube, or there was no social media, no ebooks, no streaming music services. You get the point. Today on the podcast, we're looking at an update, or the reform that is being proposed by the EU. Of course, even as I say those words, I can hear some of you clicking off, or saving this for later even if later will never come. Copyright's one of those things. It hits us in so many ways every day, yet often the discussions and the specifics of the issue cause us to get bored or lost. It's amazing, actually. Something that matters so much is really hard to get excited about, I think. But we're daring to tackle the important issue on this program, and we're using help from three voices, Polina Malaya of the Free Software Foundation Europe, Dimitar Dimitrov, our returning champion of the Free Knowledge Advocacy Group EU, and Julia Reda, German member of the European Parliament. Now, our goal today is to look at the proposed changes to copyright in the EU and break down the who, the what, the how, even some of the why, because in the end, these changes would impact every single one of us every day. For Wikimedia Deutschland, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, and this is Source Code Berlin.
If we're going to understand the proposed copyright reform, we need to know a little bit about the existing policy. So the source of most of today's policies on copyright actually goes back to 2001, something called the InfoSoc Directive of 2001. And as you might expect, it's a long text and it's not always that easy to understand or worse, it just sounds out of touch with the present day. So here's a Scottish artificial intelligence voice reading just one piece of it. Article 2. Reproduction right. Member states shall provide for the exclusive right to authorize or prohibit direct or indirect, temporary or permanent reproduction by any means and in any form, in whole or in part, a, for authors, of their works, b, for performers, of fixations of their performances, c, for phonogram producers, of their phonograms, d, for the producers of the first fixations of films, in respect of the original and copies of their films, e, for broadcasting organizations, of fixations of their broadcasts, whether those broadcasts are transmitted by wire or over the air, including by cable or satellite. I know what you're thinking. Did she say phonograph producer? Yes, she did. But okay, what's behind this document, uh, this copyright policy? Who was it created for? And, you know, who benefits from it? Those are my initial questions. There are two legal traditions underlying the European copyright. This is Julia Reda, member of the European Parliament for Germany, who knows a thing or two about copyright. Uh, on the one hand, we have uh, the Anglo-American tradition of copyright, which uh, includes a fair use clause, which means that um, the exceptions from copyright are interpreted by uh, judges who are weighing the protection of rights holders against the interests of the public in court rulings. Uh, there's the other legal tradition underlying the EU copyright system, which is uh, the continental European tradition of uh, droit d'auteur or uh, author's rights. In this system, the authors uh, of cultural works have certain inalienable rights that they cannot sell to a right holder. And uh, importantly, the exceptions to copyright, uh, the interests of the public are written into the law. Both of these systems have some problems and some critics. So critics of the American fair use system argue um, that it is kind of intransparent because uh, when you are using a cultural work, sometimes you cannot be exactly sure whether what you are doing uh, is actually lawful or not. And uh, some people say that it's biased in favor of people who can afford to go to the courts uh, if there really is a disagreement about uh, the interpretation of fair use. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the problem with the continental system is that it is quite inflexible because um, every time a new use, a new technological development comes about, you actually have to go and change the law if you want to allow this uh, type of use without uh, a copyright infringement. What you have in the European Copyright Directive is a list of 20 optional exceptions to copyright. So, uh, for example, for educational use or for citation, for parody, every single member state gets to decide themselves whether they actually want to implement this copyright exception into their national law or not. So if you can calculate, like uh, Smaury McCarthy has done in a paper, uh, there are actually over 2 million different ways of combining these 20 optional exceptions. And therefore, it's extremely unlikely to find two European countries that actually have exactly the same copyright rules. And now if you're dealing with... Um, 
cultural content on the internet and trying to communicate across borders or even offer a service in more than one country, it's you really have to be a copyright lawyer to understand what is actually legal and what is not. Julia gave this speech back in 2014 at the Chaos Communication Congress in Germany. In it, as you can hear, she's talking about the traditions of copyright law in Europe and how they have some connection to the policies in the U.S. After all, it really doesn't matter where you live nowadays. Content has gone global, even if copyright hasn't quite, or at least not in the same way. Indeed, as Julia points out, one main problem with the laws are that as soon as a new technology emerges, because the law hasn't caught up yet, using that tech to communicate or disseminate information is often, by default, illegal. Classic example, which has emerged on this podcast in the past, the proliferation of digital photography and travel has brought us to a situation where taking pictures of certain buildings, certain structures, especially celebrated uh, public buildings in Europe, putting them online, that's actually breaking the law. Uh, freedom of panorama simply means that if you're standing in a public place and taking a picture of a building, you can do anything with this picture, regardless of the copyright of the architect who actually built this place. Uh, a lot of European countries, actually the majority, don't have this copyright exception, which means that if you travel to France, you take a picture of the European Parliament building in Strasbourg and want to put it on the internet, you actually need permission for that. Um, so this is clearly uh, kind of counterintuitive because the parliament should be a public building that is uh, everybody is able to see and to take pictures of. And so uh, Wikipedia actually approached the parliament administration and said, hey, we want to show the people what the parliament looks like. Can we use a picture? And uh, the parliament administration said, uh, sure. The problem is uh, it turned out that the European parliament administration actually didn't have the rights to allow this. So when they found this out, uh, what Wikipedia did was this. Uh, this is uh, one of the pictures used uh, in the article about the parliament. And what you can see here are the flags in front of the parliament. And uh, the parliament building just happens to be in the background. But it's not the object of this picture. So therefore, uh, it does not violate the copyright of the architect. <laughs> The story doesn't end with pictures. The truth is, there's a long list of you-can't-do-that policies that apply to non-devious things that people are doing thanks to the internet every day. Obviously, something has to and had to change. So enter the EU copyright reform proposal published in September of 2016, a long-awaited update to answer all those obvious and lingering issues People throughout the EU were excited. The slow train of change had arrived. Or so it seemed. I'm Polina, and I work for FSFE as a policy analyst and the legal coordinator. So the original uh, directive that is now being revised uh, is from 2001, and obviously... It is a little bit outdated. And uh, so the commission came up with an ambitious goal to uh, revise uh, 
some some particular points, not everything, but some particular points to to make uh, copyright uh, more, um, in their words, more sustainable and more more future proof, or just more adapted to the current digital environment, digital age. It was an ambitious plan, and obviously it was welcomed by everyone because everyone already was commenting on the InfoSoc directive since since its adoption. How um, how, how how many downsides uh, it brought actually uh, on users' perspective, and. But um, so it was always like a little bit of giving just a little, the commission was always giving just a little bit. Like first they commented that, um, I think somewhere in December, um, they came up with the communication about uh, geo-blocking, but something like not substantially about um, exceptions or, or, or like a, a, a more general reform on the framework. And now in September, I think that's uh, the biggest uh, bulk on copyright reform that we got is then um, concerning uh, some um, mandatory exceptions uh, that they want to introduce. So for text and data mining and for um, teaching, like some exceptions for teaching in classrooms and, and for uh, preservation of cultural heritage. Preservation of cultural heritage, one of those catch-all phrases that you see so often in these very complicated texts. Paulina works on the issue of software, which is, of course, subject to copyright rules and regulations, like so many things. On the EU level, uh, we have several directives uh, that are applicable to uh, software. So a software is uh, considered a copyrightable uh, work. So in the terms of that, it's protected under copyright, I mean, in Europe, at least. Um, so it's considered as literary work. But um, yeah, and uh, so it automatically uh, falls under general copyright. Um, regulations, like for example, uh, InfoSoc Directive. Uh, this is the directive from 2001 that is now being revised in the EU. Software in particular is governed uh, by Software Directive, which is uh, which is basically so the hierarchy between these two is that so the overall framework is coming from the general copyright, but if there's something specifically. Um, only concerning software, then software directive is prevailing. So, so this is basically like the hierarchy between uh, between the, these two instruments or frameworks, let's say. At the start of today's program, we heard Julia Reda mention the 20 exceptions in the original policy, situations where users out there can use copyrighted content. The idea of 20 exceptions seems encouraging, right? I mean, at the very least, it seemed like there would be 20 situations where someone could share or reuse something without being in violation of the law. Unfortunately, it turns out, these 20 exceptions never really made it as exceptions throughout the member states. Um, they, in the previous, though, so in the existing InfoSoc directive, um, previously, uh, the the EU introduced, uh, let's say, like a, a list of of uh, exceptions or the legitimate uses when uh, when the user wants to use uh, a work uh, is a copyrightable work for some particular whatever purpose, and then um, they so the user do not have to uh, ask an, an authorization or license the work, right? So this is how it usually works because um, the rights holder or the author, I would say the author, has the, uh, has the monopoly right on, 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 their, on their work. And so, yes, and then, so um, some particular uses of, that, of this work are then covered by exceptions, or, which say that you can use it because 
because we have we, we need it for let's say freedom of expression or for 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 for, 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 for like following some other rights that that driving from public interest and then so so in infosoc um commission came up with uh, this uh, long list of exceptions but the problem was that they were not mandatory so for so it it so it basically created a a layer of friction amongst amongst the EU. So in one, so it was literally like the the situation was that in in there is a use of one work which was which was legal in in one country was illegal in another country. So for example, like even some even something like that 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 the teacher could not make a a copy or like copy the whole like a, a substantial part of the book in order you know for the classrooms or something like that. It wasn't it wasn't considered to be. Um, it wasn't considered to be legal, as in other countries, it was more flexible. And then I was like, "Yeah, it's legitimate use because it's for non-commercial and for teaching purposes, and it's not going outside of the classroom, and all that stuff." So, so this is like the one of the examples. But this is this was basically the the situation. And then um, obviously, it's not a good situation because I mean, we had we, we had a law, but it was really unharmonized and 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 completely completely like different in the, in, in every. I mean, it, despite the fact that it was supposed to. Uh, govern the whole EU and harmonize some aspects of, of, of copyright. For their part, the EU, with their announcement this fall, has been calling for the modernization of EU copyright laws. They're promising, or at least proposing, that they create, finally, a real digital single market. Now, what does that mean? Well, if I look at the text on the website, they talk about the EU needing modern copyright rules fit for the digital age, uh, and they present legislative proposals to make sure that consumers and creators can make the most of the digital world. So some of the objectives that they list, just to give you the top three, one, more cross-border access to online content, two, wider opportunities to use copyrighted materials in education, research, and cultural heritage, and three, a better functioning copyright marketplace. Sounds great. Sounds like the reform that we've been waiting for. However, according to Polina, and many people out there, this may not be the case. And uh, so, obviously, the reform opportunity uh, opened opened the floor for these kind of questions. And everyone and a lot of people were. Well, there also was an extensive consultation, and um, which was, I think, in two years ago, when the commission was asking uh, public opinion and what what they're supposed to address. And Yes, and then everyone, because and all of these issues were obviously um, brought up to the commission to the commission's attention, and uh, everyone was waiting that okay, maybe that's that can be an opportunity to change copyright to be just to be more suitable, um, and uh, yeah, for for our modern age. And uh, but yeah, but the September's uh, com- communications uh, didn't unfortunately. Um, Oh, yeah, I didn't live up to these hopes. At some particular points, it even seems that it might even get worse in, 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 some, in some way. So uh, that's very unfortunate. For another experienced voice from someone who lives in the trenches of EU policy, we asked free knowledge advocate Dimitar Dimitrov to weigh in on the new proposal. Here's what he had to say. Despite the fact that new technologies provide a historic chance for cross-border access to culture, We still live in a world where legal obstacles remain in place that make it difficult to share knowledge, even within the European Union member states. The proposed copyright reform that we 
anticipated and hoped would remedy many of these problems, unfortunately does little to address the challenges. It also fails to seize any of the opportunities. To the contrary, it may actually have adverse effects on volunteer projects. We must include at least several fixes in order to balance this reform proposal. I mean, if Europe can't even agree on the legality of sharing photos of public spaces, just to give an example, that would rightfully be regarded as evidence of incapacity. It would be simply sad. But we must also ensure that searching large bodies of text and data that are legally accessible is itself permitted, something that is not the case in the current reform proposal. On the other hand, we should also buckle up and help authors get even better provisions for transparency on their usage statistics and contract renegotiations. For one very basic structural change that the internet has brought about is the fact that users and authors can now directly communicate with each other. We don't have to go through intermediaries anymore in order to exchange content, commentary, and even money. Instead of embracing this, however, the European Commission tries to strengthen the middleman to the disadvantage of both users and authors. We just have to fix that, and we should fix it now, because we can't wait another 10 years for our next chance. As I listen to Julia, Polina, and Dimi, and then I read the criticisms online, I wonder, how did this happen? How does a correction or an update to a policy that's well known to be outdated and simply no good, how does the new version end up being potentially worse? The answer lies in the consultation process. Some of my guests today have even mentioned it. Before the commission comes out with its reform proposal, it has this tell-us-what-you-think kind of period where it takes comments from the public. Then, in theory, the input gets incorporated into the new policy. In practice, well, that's another story. Here's Paulina. Yeah, so the usual way um, is that they, publi they publish a public consultation, so everyone is welcome to comment. So it's either, either you're a, a business or, or a citizen or, or, or a university or a nonprofit organization, it doesn't matter. Uh, so you can comment and you can just send, send your comments and... and Yeah, so, so so this is the usual one, and then usually afterwards, uh, the commission has to assess all the uh, all the answers and publish also all the answers. So the one who submitted, so they published the report and they identified the points that that were most the mostly uh, highlighted there. But I think it's it's not like they are bound. I mean, obviously they are bound, but it's but it's still more more or less that okay, this is your you know this is these are the opinions. And okay, but now we come up with our with our own assessment or something, which is a little unfair. But yeah, but this is how it is. So if the commission can and seems to have ignored many of the wishes and demands of the public for a more reasonable and fair EU wide copyright policy, I'm left wondering, for as they say in Latin, qui bono, for whose benefit is the policy reform that's being created? And beyond that, what can we whose wishes are being ignored, do about it. 
Um, the current um, proposal is basically, in my in my view, um, aimed at preserving the monopoly and preserving those the, the rights of, of dying businesses. In terms of yes, so and um, I think this is very unfair. And um, because I mean, I mean, the, the the problem is that the copyright is that it's it's sort of or the existing copyright regulations and and and, and the norms is that. It's so frantically, desperately trying to impose its legitimacy uh, on the on the digital uses, and and I think the problem and the problem is not with internet. The problem is with the, with the fact that copyright is just proved to not be able to adapt to the existing realities, and um, and for us uh, specifically, and that we also decided or we we also decided to focus more uh, with the copyright with the existing. Uh, copyright proposal is that obviously doesn't directly uh, mention uh, software anywhere, but uh, for us the, the the most important important point is the their so-called uh, digital restrictions management, also called digital rights management. So these are these technical protection measures uh, on the digital uh, files, digital copies that just restrict users from using. Using the, the the work that they legitimately has already accessed by by buying or by licensing, and it just restricts it in the way that you can use, for example, an, an analog copy. So with the book, you can do whatever you can, right? So you you had a copy, you can lend it, you can sell it, you can um, you can just even destroy it. It doesn't matter because it's just I mean th- this is your property, right? But with the digital copy, it, unfortunately, this is not like that. So with the copy, like for example, like uh, if it's if it's DRM. Uh, if it's yeah, if it's then protected with this with the so-called necessary technical protection measures or digital restrictions management, then I, I, I cannot do the same thing as I could do with the with the printed book. So I cannot lend it because I can't I can't make a copy or there is or it usually yeah, so usually they restrict copy making the reproduction right. and um, they also for example sometimes they have even this kind of uh, restrictions when. It's you just use it just disappears from 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 your computer or from your device just after some time. So it's just like okay, that's it. You could read it for 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 I don't know for let's say two months and then that's it. It's gone. And and I think this is very very scary and and it's and it's completely unnecessary. And I would actually also want to um, uh, quote I think Bruce uh, Schneier in this. I really like his this quote that, that trying to make digital files uncopyable. Is like trying to make water not wet. Uh, I think most of the politicians in the European Union know that we have a huge problem. Um, we have a rise of nationalism all across the EU and the EU is really in danger of losing uh, its legitimacy and they know that their future depends on the support of the people. So here we have kind of a unique uh, situation where a lot of the people are actually asking the EU to do something. They see a problem and they want it to be solved. Uh, usually where uh, the EU gets most of its support from is uh, what they call the four freedoms, uh, which is the freedom of movement, of capital, goods and services, uh, which is kind of uh, something that you uh, experience when you're traveling through Europe, that you don't have to uh, show your ID 
that you don't have to exchange currency and so on. And that is really kind of making people's lives easier. But obviously, if you look at these four freedoms, they're really kind of tilted in favor of economic freedoms. And what I want to propose is that uh, we should push for a fifth freedom, uh, so to say a freedom of movement for information. And um, if we call for the European Union to, to institute a right for people in Europe to access culture across national borders, I think the EU politicians will have a really, really difficult time to say no to that. Um, but, uh, well, if they don't want to look like complete hypocrites. So I think it is our task at this point uh, to make the EU more than uh, an economic union and really enhance the fundamental rights and freedom dimension of the European Union. But it's our responsibility to actually push for that and to make that happen. Yeah, so it, um, it's just a set of activities um, you do to, in order to influence, um, yeah, influence the decision-making. And uh, yeah, so it's obviously it involves uh, just publishing analysis and, and articles and, uh, position, and position papers, but it also includes the personal meetings with the officials trying to, trying to get your point across, trying to try and make them to listen to you. And um, yeah, so it also requires campaigning, like for example, with, with some, some most of the successful, let's say, campaigns uh, in the history of copyright, I think will be... Uh, the actor, the, the anti-actor um, campaigns, and yes, when actually it was really made by just gathering all the people and gathering so many people, and all the people were just bombing in institutions with emails, calls, letters, and just trying to like, please don't do it because this is this is bad and this is how it is. And I mean, and this is and this is also a part of advocacy work to engage public, to care for these issues, and then you know, and together, together we can. Uh, we can sort of oppose this on behind the closed doors, lobby meetings, and you know, in the hallways. Um, that is usually like the uh, the other parts, the industry. The industry is engaging more of that. I get. I think. Paulina Malaya is a policy analyst and legal coordinator for the Free Software Foundation Europe. When it comes to copyright reform, for the remainder of 2016 and well into the summer of 2017, when a vote may take place, the debate will rage on. The questions and criticisms continue to develop well beyond the few issues we've touched upon on today's program. Among the more recent controversies, the new policy could impact the simple act of sharing a link, which incredibly could become a copyright infringement in some situations under the new policy. But as I type the show notes for today's program, I, for one, hope it won't come to that. Now, you can follow the work of FSFE by going to fsfe.eu. You can also follow Julia Reda on Twitter at Senficon, S-E-N-F-I-C-O-N. Same goes for Demi. You can go to at 
dme underscore z that's his twitter handle our website is source code dot berlin that's right it's a dot berlin and we're very happy about that you can go there to listen to this program or any previous programs maybe that makes more sense you can also find us on twitter at src code berlin we're on facebook so you can like us and follow things there music on today's program was by jonas 78 and Lobo Loco, all available uh, using CC licenses on the Free Music Archive. This program is published under a CC BYSA 4.0 license and edited by me. Until next time, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. Thanks for listening. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's really sad. It's making me really sad now. <laughs>